Hello there, fine folks, and welcome to Fuds on Film. This is our compare and contrast episode for December 2021, and following up on our recent sports episode, we're talking about sports again, although this time two films in which the sports are entirely invented for the purposes of this film and allegedly for our entertainment. Let's see how well that holds. Uh, let's barrel straight into this after quickly announcing that I'm Drew, also with me Craig. <laughs> And Scott. Hello. At least one of us is pretending to be enthusiastic, so thank you, Scott. <laughs> we appreciate it. <laughs> I like one of these films. Which one is it? Wait and find out. Oh, you're one ahead of me, so well done. Uh, I, let, let's begin with one of those films that is certainly the more well-known of our pairing tonight, which is 1975's Rollerball. Yes, which is set in the futuristic dystopia of Check's Notes 2018. Uh, Rollerball introduces us to the most famous practitioner of the titular sport, James Cann's Jonathan E., playing the deadly sport for the Houston team in what would be an international league where nation's still a thing. They've gone out of fashion after, apparently, some nasty warfare business, with all decisions now left to the care of, well, business with corporations running the world and your life. And also Jonathan's life, as a corporate bigwig tells him to retire. Most of this film's world-building comes through Jonathan's quest to find out why he's being asked to retire, a quest which mostly meets with dead ends and false hope, while getting all the more dangerous for him as he continues to defy his corporate masters. This ultimately leads to a deadlier-than-usual final game of the season, an already highly dangerous fusion of roller derby, the video game speedball and a, with a twist of Roman-era gladiatorial chariot racing, uh, but now with all the rules suspended. Wait, there were rules before? <laughs> um, this was, somehow, my first dalliance with Rollerball, at least as far as my adult memory goes, and I'm left a bit torn. On the one hand, I do want to automatically applaud films that don't dump reams of exposition on you and Rollerball relies on the audience following Jonathan along as he wakes up from the apparent slumber of the decadence people are living in and questioning how the system came to be and how the world really works. On the other hand, I'm not convinced Johnny Boy actually finds a great many answers, uh, so you're left to fill the gaps yourself with a, a lack of information that encourages more idle guessing than informed speculation. I mean, that whole consulting the world's central computer and its mad scientist keeper sequence practically rubs your nose in its refusal to be drawn on any kind of answer. <laughs> <laughs> That aside, uh, there's not much of a concrete message other than corporations, bad, freedom, good. And while we're here, we should also point out that the world corporations are currently building has little in common with what Rollerball is serving us. Um, however, even if I didn't appreciate the answers or lack of them, I was drawn along well enough by the question. On the more nuts and bolts level, I say this more or less holds up. The sport itself makes for some fun action sequences, although I could maybe have done with them being cut back a little, but mm. then again, it is sort of the basis of the film. Um, director Norman Jewison keeps things moving along well enough for the era, although bear in mind this is pre-Star Wars 70s sci-fi, so expect a very different pacing from mm. more modern works. James Cann's fine in the role, but the character doesn't have all that much of an opportunity to either grow or really show much emotion, although those few opportunities are grabbed well enough. Uh, cinematography from Douglas Slocum keeps things interesting even if the far-flung future of Rollerball's 2018 holds little relation to the historical record. Uh, so then, I don't regret watching this and there's enough interesting ideas here to give this recommendation, but it didn't really blow my doors off. I was, um, I was adamant that we had, at least in passing, mentioned this film some time ago, because I feel like I remember a conversation we had where I said to you guys that I kind of had a fondness for Rollerball because it's one of maybe two films I can think of that I sat and watched just my dad and I 
and I can't remember what the circumstances were, but I was I think I must have been like about twelve or something and the women folk of the house were out at some function or another <laughs> and I remember we were browsing through the channels and I was like, Oh, rollerball, you'll like that. Uh, and we sat and watched it together and um I've maybe watched it a couple of times since then and each time I've watched it I feel like maybe I've enjoyed it a, a little bit more and I I actually really, really enjoyed it this time. I don't know that James Caan necessarily is the right person for this role or certainly the direction that he's being given. Like you say, Scott, I think the sort of relative lack of emotion from him is perhaps in keeping with the very downbeat tone of the film, but it doesn't necessarily make for scintillating watching. I don't find Jonathan all that engaging as a character and I don't necessarily understand why the crowds attending the matches are, are quite so behind him. Or how he's um, how he's gathered this sort of like cult, you know, momentum among the mm. fans of the sport and whatnot. But um, th- there's enough of interest that happens in the film. Like you say, I appreciate the fact that it doesn't necessarily go about spelling everything out. There are one or two references in there that are a little bit clunky, perhaps, but for the most part, it treats the audience with some modicum of intelligence. There was a couple of attempts at humour that I kind of appreciated, like the um, the the computer, was it called Zero again? Um, I'd almost completely forgotten that scene with Zero, and I had a proper chuckle to myself at the notion that uh, this computer that's relied upon as a repository, basically, for all human knowledge for the entire planet, has accidentally lost the 13th century. <laughs> um, but uh, if I've got one major, major criticism of uh, Rollerball, it's quite how fragile these big burly players seem to be because, in all honesty, they, they go down like a sack of potatoes at the slightest contact during these matches. And let's be honest, if falling over on a pair of roller skates was quite this detrimental to people's health, the human race would not have survived the 70s. So that aside... <laughs> um, I still feel like there's a good deal to enjoy about rollerball. I appreciate the fact that I'm wearing sort of nostalgia tinted glasses, but I do feel that objectively I quite enjoyed it this time round. And uh, I'm now going to listen to Drew explain uh, absolutely, uh, no uncertain terms, why he feels the absolute opposite. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't feel the opposite. I'm probably quite close to where Scott is in this. Hmm. It's. I had a notion I had seen rollerball, actually, and it turns out I hadn't. Uh, although I'm, I'm sure we spoke about it, but I don't know. It was maybe entirely unrelated to the podcast. It's possible. I, I don't remember the conversation, I'm afraid, Craig, so I can't mm. um, say yeah or nay to that. Yeah, I've, I've searched notion. the archives relative. Sorry, Drew, I've searched the archives relatively thoroughly, and it's it's not been part of the schedule for Fuds on Film or the one-liner that I can find. So, no, I'm pretty sure we didn't mention a podcast, mm. um, but uh, yeah, I was fairly sure I'd seen it. Turns out I hadn't, although I'd been vaguely aware of it for most of my life and I think perhaps that Scott referenced it already because of Speedball mm-hmm. that was a way that that was somehow um, inspired by Rollerball first of all actually unusually for this slot we may actually be able to compare and contrast to here so I hope I'm not stepping too much on your toes what you're going to say for your introduction to the next film Craig that's alright but we mentioned in our first sports film a few years ago although not in our most recent episode that most sports films, the sport's not really the point. It's a framework on which to hang another story. Mm-hmm. And that's very much the case here. And I quite appreciated that because it's very much not the case in the upcoming film. <laughs> I may I may touch upon that very point in my notes, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, in this case, the, the sport isn't the point. And the structure of the film actually it follows that, the, apart from a handful of short training 
not even a montage. That's not not a, not common for the genre. Actually, there's not a, much of a montage, but a couple training sequences. But mostly, it keeps itself to three main uh, matches, which are far too long. Which is one of the problems with it. But for the most part, keeps them in three matches, and it, it sort of ties into the bigger story. And that works quite well. Mm. And what works quite well too, and again in contrast to the upcoming film, is that. At least in the early stages, this sport, made up as it is, you can understand the purpose. Grok fairly quickly, at least the, the basic framework of the game. Mm-hmm. Understand who's on which team, because they mm-hmm. have such things as uniforms. Mm-hmm. Although that kind of falls away to the end and it, it falls into the same trap of our next film, where in the end everybody's just hitting each other like apparently that's what they exist for rather than to protect other people on their team but yeah they do quite a good job of this invented sport of making it fairly easy for an audience to grok to understand who's in which team who's doing what that's all quite good i just feel that they (laughs) crucially making it making it appear that it might actually be a functioning sport yes exactly so you look (laughs) at i think that could be real yeah it's a bit over the top in the whole you're very much right about the fragility of these people but the uh, sorry, I've totally lost my train of thought there because I was trying to remember who had said that. Was it you, Scott? The fragility uh, of people, not that it was was myself. Great. Yeah, so what's your thought? I sort of second guess myself there. But yes, uh, you're right about the fragility of the people, Craig. And it, but it makes sense, you know. It, it has a sort of sporty truthiness to it, so that works quite well. And I just feel that for the rest of it, that the sporting parts go on too long. The whole film is at least thirty minutes too long, I would say. Sporty truthiness, though. Interesting thought, Drew. Hold that. Hold that thought. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I haven't let go of that thought in days. And yeah, there's some interesting ideas. I mean, it falls into the same sort of trap as things like Demolition Man does. Um, And bear with me, I know that's not an obviously immediate uh, comparison (laughs) point. You have my attention, Drew. (laughs) Uh, But it's the... The, I don't know if it's a lack of ambition or just like not being sufficiently, I mean, too cynical perhaps, but the idea that this incredible worldwide change has come, apart, come about in such an incredibly short time frame, mm. like the the whole world has changed in Demolition Man here. This meant to have happened in less than 70 years. In this case, it's 40 odds. Mm. I think uh, that's, in fairness, I think that's, a, I was thinking about this and ruminating on it myself the other day. This is a, this is a pitfall that all manner of films fall into sci-fi mm-hmm. films even mm-hmm. i mean the likes of blade runner and whatnot what was 2019 i think the android fueled future of blade <laughs> yes. runner was supposed to be like a mere 30 years if that from you know <laughs> yeah it, it's very wasn't common. predator 2 set like what four years from when it was made or yeah, like yeah. <laughs> los angeles was a war zone yeah in mm-hmm. 97 that was set i think wasn't it uh, <laughs> so, um yeah so it's certainly it's common within the genre but the Demolition Man in particular was, was the one that came to my mind while watching it yeah. was because in that there's like the whole society has completely changed and but in particular it makes the point of like there's one person that John Sparty meets later who's on the force with them but apparently he's forgotten everything that happened <laughs> and in this case you've got Moses Gunn who's 46 when he shot this whose character claims he can remember as a child um, which would have been about the time the film was made given this in 2018 um, when there were just three nations <laughs> your, your, your timeline doesn't work not only does it make no sense in the, the scale of the changes it doesn't actually work in any time in terms of time so that sort of thing tends to take me out. Like, you've not thought this through well enough. Mm. <laughs> um, and then, but I mean, you know, the, 
there are interesting ideas, the ideas of corporations taking the world is something science fiction comes back to time and again, and it's understandable why. Not always, <laughs> like, you know, believably done, but we can get it. Uh, although, a couple of little things there that I wonder if they might have played differently to a US audience, because I've always found US club games having national anthems before them super, mm. super creepy and weird. Yeah, and um, the notion that they have corp- uh, corporate anthems here is kind of, yeah. Yeah, it kind of so it means nothing to us, because you only get national anthems played for most sports in the world when it's actually an international thing, you mm. know, <laughs> between two nation states playing or something like that, whereas in the United States and baseball and American football stuff, it's like the national anthem sung for every single game, even if it's just between two clubs, even from the same city, and I find mm. that weird. And you're not but, being patriotic if you don't stand to attention. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm not going to go off on a tangent there, just but because of that culture in the US, I think that corporate anthem thing would have played quite differently. Mm. Whereas to me, it's like, eh, I guess, eh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's, I mean, it's quite interesting, but it's complete refusal to give any answers to the questions of um, Jonathan's quest. It's gonna, it's frustrating, and part of me is thinking, okay, that I, I sort of get that. But it kind of leaves the the last um, bit, which ought to really be sort of an FU to the corporations kind of feeling kind of hollow mm-hmm. because there's so little information there, so little of what's going on behind the scenes. And they'll tease strange little things like they mention the crocodile. Who's the crocodile? What's the crocodile yeah, about? At the party. Yeah, because I, 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 we're supposed to assume that the Evans he refers to is Jonathan, right? Because it's Jonathan yeah, E. You assume it's Jonathan E, yes. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. So, oh, who, who, who's who got it in for the crocodile? Eh? Did, did you hear about Evans? What? He's out, gone. No kidding. The old man? Who got him? What? I said who got him? The crocodile. And that's the last time that's mentioned. And also the first time that's mentioned. And it's just the mm. passing of the party. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's quite intriguing. Um, and I imagined all sorts of things that perhaps this was a, perhaps a predatory um, old man who fancied Jonathan Evans and decided like, he was going to have him. That sort of thing's been on sci-fi. That would be quite sinister in a, in a number of ways and quite interesting. But no, no, it's not that. Because it, it kind of almost felt like possession. I was reading that got as in, like, rather got to him or, um, like, who, like, wanted him. Because there is some of that in the film, like the the wives being sort of traded around. A, a corporate mm. executive wanted his wife, so she went. So, like, well, it might happen to the players. It used to happen with gladiators and things that it would become wanted by wealthy women and I'm guessing wealthy men too so I thought it was something like that but no it goes nowhere it's pointless and that was my big problem in the end other than that sort of overstays its welcomes in the end it was just a bit pointless yeah I mean it's going for some sort of oh the corporations are afraid that this one individual will show people the value of individuality and lead a revolt that will take over the corporate world or something but there's a lot of missing steps in that argument and I don't really see where it's it's actually going to get there it's Uh, the one area that you probably want it to be a little bit more explicit in right yeah yeah because it feels like it's trying to head towards an ending where you're going to have I'm Jonathan E no I'm Jonathan E it has that sort of feel to it it's like oh well, no, it didn't do anything. Hmm. Well, I guess that was fun. Yeah, I guess I've always felt like it was pretty explicit that that's the whole notion was that, yeah, the individual can't be bigger than the corporation. I'm sure there's there's a bit of dialogue here or there regarding that, but I suppose looking at it objectively and 
removing the fact that obviously I've seen it a couple of times and I've got some fondness for it and I've I've done some you know I've done a little bit of reading and research into the production of the movie and stuff over the years and whatnot but it was maybe knowledge I'm sort of bringing from elsewhere into it rather than just stepping back and viewing it objectively for what's on the screen um I can kind of get that yeah it's um it's maybe not as explicit as it as it needs to be but I really enjoy Rollerball. Um, that party scene, I really like that party scene this time round. It was one of the scenes that hasn't really worked for me previously, but for some reason it kind of it it kind of clicked. It had a real nightmarish quality, I think, to it that I kind of appreciated this time round. Um, and like you say, Drew, the notion that well, the corporation took my wife because an executive wanted her, and mm-hmm. um, he basically comes home one day and finds he's got a new <laughs> he's got a new girlfriend. She introduces herself. <laughs> Hi, I'm was it Barbara or something like Daphne. that? Oh, Daphne. Daphne. That's it. His first one who's been there for six months who wasn't his wife. Like yeah. Adam's game before that, so yeah, it's just yeah, he doesn't get any choice in it. Um, yeah. And I mean, the idea of like, individual freedom and choice—that's sort of the central theme. That like, just because you have all your needs catered for, if you don't have choice and liberty, then you don't really have anything. Um, mm. And I get that. I just don't think the film did it strongly enough. And then I also, were, sorry, Drew, sorry. Also, as you were saying too, it does mention that it's when the. Um, John Houseman, who, like James Cann, is actually taking this nonsense far too seriously. They're, they're a bit too earnest about this, I think. And leave, if they lighten up a wee bit, I think it might make it a bit more enjoyable. Mm. But he's in the, the meeting with the um, the executive board all on their television monitors. Yeah. And he says, we, we agreed not to harm him, yes, but also we have to, because the whole point of the game was to show that, you know, no one person is bigger than corporations, but... That kind of seemed like it was creating a solution in search of a problem. Mm. I'm not sure that's what it was. Where it's like, go back to ancient Rome, which seems valid given the the concepts of the film, but the whole bread and circuses thing, and it was like you 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 distract people with sports and give them that their bloody um, delights and things. It wasn't about not having an individual because sometimes an individual would be quite useful because you'd get people behind him or her, mm-hmm. um, and then not think about the individuals who are in power or anything like that. Yeah, you make, yeah. Him, you make him a figurehead of the corporations. Yeah, um, so like the sport itself is a distraction that you don't have to worry about. And if there's a person who comes out and finds a sports person, what can they do? The other issue I had for it watching it this time was um, nobody on either of those two teams, New York or Houston at the end, I think paid that much attention to what they were being told about the rules. Um, not about the, you know, no penalties, no substitutions, but no time time limit part because if you stop mm. to think about that for more than a second you would never take to the pitch yeah. Yeah, sorry I'm, sorry coach i was just thinking under under what circumstance does the game actually conclude then <laughs> uh, when yeah. you're all dead sorry what did you say coach it sounded like you said when you're all dead uh, did i did it, is that what 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 <laughs> yeah it doesn't really delve into either the morality of either because it's all about murder um mm. and like people are, are dying in that all of the time and at no, no point does anybody say you know what since the this, in, this match in particular would have to involve murder and nothing but murder. I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. You could at least have a scene where they're compelled for some reason to do it. Yeah. No, it's like, oh no, but that's fine. And also, just a minor sort of technical point: the guys reading out the rules at the start of that final match, uh, and says no, uh, no penalties, no expulsions, no replacements, no time limit. Immediately cuts to a board showing a time limit. Well done. <laughs> Wonderful editing. <laughs> oh dear. Ah uh, well. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. Um, 
a lot of it works quite well, and I appreciate that. The, the look's quite interesting, but it's going back to what Scott says, I mean, the pacing's the biggest problem. Take 30 minutes out of this, or just like, somebody tighten up the pacing, I think it would be a lot more compelling. And also, what would be more compelling is if, I think, German company responsible for the 4K UHD release had decided to, to boost all the oranges to within an inch of life, making everybody look like they've been dipped in sunny delight. <laughs> That was visually repugnant. <laughs> like, oh, everybody's been bathing in um, fake tan. That's an interesting look. <laughs> That's a, a technical issue with the restoration and not with the film, of course. But I, I was struck by quite how orange James Can looked for a good half of the film. But I mean, I, I guess it's because I don't really want to move on to the next one, but I suppose well. we should. Yeah. <laughs> so, Craig, the, the Blood of Heroes or Salute to the Jugger, whichever... What to say of The Blood of Heroes, a.k.a. The Salute of the Jugger, a Rutger Hauer movie from 1989? Well, we could start by saying it's a Rutger Hauer movie from 1989 and leave it at that. And I think we all know what to do with that information one way or another. If I were feeling a little more charitable, and to be clear, I don't, but I like you, listener, (laughs) and I want to see you do well in life, I would proffer this much. The Blood of Heroes is a movie set in some dystopian, apocalyptic future where teams of roving folk known as juggers roam the desolate, sandy landscape of wherever, inexplicably plying their trade at a sport which involves punching each other a lot and spiking a dog's skull onto a stick. Why a dog's skull, Craig? Who knows, listener? Who knows? Certainly not writer-director David Webb Peoples, because baked into his screenplay comes the kind of ambiguity that affords a writer who's clearly forgotten the why of it all the opportunity of not having to explain it. (laughs) Howard is Sallow, the de facto captain of the Jugger Squad upon whom the movie's plot centres. The team is rounded out by Delroy Lindo, Anna Caterina, Vincent D'Onofrio, Justin Monjo, and the spectacularly beautifully named Gandhi McIntyre, the names of whose characters I care not to remember. There is some vague mention that Salo was once a professional jugger who played in a league but was outcast, and to this end, he wants to take his team back to the underground city where much of humanity now resides in order to take on the pros and reclaim his status. This is to be our hero's journey, though I'm not sure I'd declare Sallow to be much of a hero, and it's about all the explanation you're going to get as to the where, when, what, why, and how of this absolute shambles. The other future sport we spoke about today had at least something to say about capitalist society, which sets it apart from a lot of other sporting movies which typically fall into the categories of biography and or redemptive arc. The way in which The Blood of Heroes cunningly sets itself apart is in its resolute refusal to yield any kind of salient commentary or observation on anyone, anything, any time, any place or any circumstance, and is instead a rudderless flotilla of flotsam in search of a plot to justify its existence. One of the central notions of the movie, that the sport played by juggers, are we to assume that this sport is called jug, again, we don't know, (laughs) is somehow significant enough to be a means of establishing some social standing. Somewhat falls apart upon observation of said sport, which is clearly the product of a fever dream and not at all a practical (laughs) demonstration of a team activity. Having established a series of designated positions and assigned each a tool or weapon, the onset of the game is marked by an immediate and complete shambles in which everyone basically runs at each other and starts punching, while the quick, whose job it is to 
be quick, runs for the pointy stick onto which the dog's skull must be thrust. The sum total of any tactics involved seems to fall upon the person whose role it is to wield a big net made out of chain link, swinging it wildly above their head in an occasional attempt to somehow shield the quick. For a movie which pins its hopes on selling you an authentic future sport, David Webb People sure hasn't spent a lot of time thinking it through, and the result wouldn't look out of place at lunch break or a primary school playground. Minus the chain link mind. And the dog skull. Probably. <laughs> Maybe? Anyhow, Salo's squad eventually takes on Kidda, a disappointingly non-scouse Joan Chen, as their new quick, when their existing one, the affectionately monikered Dog Boy, ends up with a gammy leg. Making their way to the underground city in a lift that takes so long to descend that they all catch asleep on the way down, the movie does at least attempt some world building, and I grudgingly accept that I liked a couple of the ideas offered therein. I also quite liked Mad Max cast-off Max Fairchild as Gonzo, an old league acquaintance of Sallow's, and the only character whose general demeanour of soullessness and melancholia manages to come across as vaguely interesting, as opposed to poorly written or fleshed out. If I remember correctly, the film climaxes in Kidda being offered a role within the league, but I can't be certain, as a week has passed since I watched it, and even the most mundane of tasks in my day job have quite easily supplanted it within my memory. The problem with this outcome, as it's presented, is that I found no real reason to care about Kidda, meaning her ascension to the league fosters little within me beyond complete ambivalence. I also think we're expected to see it as some sort of redemption by proxy for Sallow, but again, I have no reason to feel invested in his emotional well-being, so I genuinely couldn't care less. The Blood of Heroes is little other than a Mad Max wannabe, so desperate to fill that franchise's boots that it even borrows the Australian Outback as a location and some of the cast. I'm really glad that People's directed nothing else after this and chose to hone his talents as a writer instead, because we got a couple of decent movies out of his word processor in the decades since. We probably also ought to be glad that Lindo and D'Onofrio's careers had enough momentum to push through, but I wouldn't blame them if they left this mess off their CVs. Six million dollars on this sh- Remarkable. <laughs> yes, uh, ambivalence is a good word, Craig, because that's that and boredom were my two main emotions through this. I I didn't care about anybody because I don't think even while watching, it, I could always remember what Rutger Hauer's character's name was. Well, you you would need a reason to care, Drew, and no one provides that. Yes, and <laughs> Joan Chen's character, I forgot almost immediately that her name wasn't quick till I got to the end of the way. That's a position, isn't it? I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. It's weird, and in contrast, like I mentioned earlier to these other films, this is a film that's invented a sport where they decided to make that the entire point of the film. Like, oh dear. Not only does that never work, it never works in a sport that people understand and are familiar with, not a sport where there appear to be no rules. Everybody's just fighting each other, and the two people who might be able to score sort of on their own anyway, for the most part, is... uh, um, and it doesn't help itself by um, having a a build up in the opening moments of the the film where everybody's getting ready for this this game with its very very arcane timing method. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I actually, some stones. I actually really appreciated that. <laughs> uh, I lasted twenty six stones. It's a characteristic <laughs> detail. Given that's probably the one thing that's actually memorable about this. Um, <laughs> but in the build up to this match, you see all these people like they're they're strapping up and putting on headgear that is, I guess, meant to have a sort of a Mad Max style post apocalyptic look, but seems mostly designed to obscure the wearer's vision as much as is possible, mm-hmm. and that's its sole purpose. And I don't have an awful lot to say about it because it's I just couldn't care. There aren't any characters. 
And then we have this strange idea that it's played with dog skulls, and I'm guessing it's taking a terrible um, toll on the dog population because you don't see a single actual dog in the film that I can recall. Um, so probably all dogs are sacrificed to this <laughs> game. And then it just it fails to world build at all. Any attempts make no sense. Well, they do end up on the coast at one point, but for the most part they seem to be in the middle of a barren desert. And in the middle of a barren desert they find a town that's selling dried fish. <laughs> well, okay. the fish would be dry if they're living in the desert. <laughs> uh, and then strange things that I don't know whether they think is quirky or interesting, but it's like, apparently in this post-apocalypse, plates haven't survived. And all plates are um, have been replaced by large leaves. Again, despite being in the middle of the desert and no greenery being seen at any point ever. <laughs> See, I think the mistake you're making, Drew, is misunderstanding the function of nuclear weapons, which is not to turn everything into a barren wasteland. It's just that they dump a lot of sand on everything. Um, <laughs> so there's nothing to say that the trees won't survive. Just thought I'd throw that fact out there for you. <laughs> fact. Thanks, Dr. <Doctor> Science. <laughs> um yeah, so you got that. They're building up to this um, attempt to rejoin the league, but you've never established why. Oh God, I've already forgotten his name. You just mentioned it five minutes. Salo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whatever it is he actually did to leave, what the league is, what the league does, why anybody would care, and then we have the. It's meant to be kind of like the sinister bigwig, the kind of feudalistic like lord or something there, who walks up to your Mad Max fella and wants him to hurt Salo. Again, we don't know why. He's apparently just done an naughty at some point in the past. And then he, he's all affronted and he says, you want me to damage him on purpose? That is the entirety of your sport. It is 100%. Why are you bothered now? And it goes nowhere anyway. Because in the end, they win their match and then it just it ends. And I guess that it's okay for him to come back now. And it might be okay if there are any interesting characters or none. And the acting is something that happens in other films. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> Joan Chen. She's um, I've never been afraid before. Really? Perhaps she might care to demonstrate this through, oh, I don't know, acting, perchance. Instead of just saying, I'm scared, in the same flat monotone you've employed throughout the rest of the film. Mm. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just... More than that, it's boring. It's, it's, it's worth remembering that David Webb Peoples wrote Unforgiven, but he also wrote this film, which <laughs> early on, one of the first lines that anyone says is, I'm going to rip your tits off, bitch. That was Unforgiven, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then, uh, apart from that being just a horrible line to her retort is, oh no, I'm going to hurt you. And it, I know. her acting's appalling, but the lines she's given us are also Snappy comeback. <laughs> No, it is you who is the one who will be hurt. Yes. <laughs> it is you who you will have your pets stripped off. I know you are, but what am I? Um, <laughs> yes. yeah, um, there's a lot of things you can blame the internet for, but I think the, the primary thing we need to blame it in this instance is that it made it sound in some way interesting. And <laughs> or that, or that it allowed us to downsteal this film. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, it on a kind of the capsule recaps that I read made it sound a bit more Gonzo and a bit more uh, Mad Max like, and having a bit more of an interesting kind of world building thing going on. And that very much doesn't. Uh, I don't really have a great deal more to add over what we've already discussed. It is just 
quite dull. Um, I didn't hate it. It's just not interesting enough to have much of an opinion about it. Yeah. It, it's, it, it was a thing that I saw, and if anything, thinking about it now to record this, it's frustrating because it feels like there could have been a much, much better film in here. Like oh, the, yeah. the, the The ingredients are there, but they've just been woefully underbaked. And, um, it, yeah, I mean, I, I believe this script was written around about the same time as Unforgiven. Unforgiven uh, went into a kind of a, a very long polishing period by the sounds of it, and I guess if it was the same quality as this when it was made, it probably needed it. Um, yeah, as I say, there's ideas here that could have worked, and some of it that could have made for a certainly much more interesting film. But, yeah, none of it's actually been done so... Celavi, mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, the characters are dull. The action doesn't really hold up. Um, the world building just isn't there. It, it's frustratingly almost there in, in some places, particularly towards the end, but doesn't quite get there. And it just can't conjure up enough drama or conflict anywhere in it to really mm. care about it one way or the other. So, yeah, bit the, of a downer. The whole thing's clearly been predicated on this one notion of, oh, imagine this brutal future sport in this apocalyptic landscape, and this is what people travel about doing, and this is the only way that they can, you know, earn some sort of societal respect or whatever. But that so little thought has been put into that yeah. sport, the whole yeah. separate central tenet. It would, I, I feel like it would not have taken a lot more work to polish up and actually make the sport something that just made any sense whatsoever. <laughs> I was going to say more sense, but just any yeah, sense. Any, yeah, I mean, I can understand in that world why that might work. Saying because everything's sort of gone bad to almost like a tribalistic society with like remnants of some technology and things in the way that. It's what some sports have come out of. It's like having a a warrior for a tribe or a locality. Um, that's where you, you earn respect or something. Or simply, in this horrible, miserable, crappy world, where like some sort of sport appears that gives people any sort of outlet at all. Mm-hmm. That, you, that I understand that as a basis for it, and that you say like maybe a local hero is people's existence can't be particularly fantastic in this, so sport's an outlet, it's an entertainment, because there's not a lot mm-hmm. else. That's all there, that you can all understand that, but like, oh, this is the sport they came up with, and what does anybody do? I don't know. Why are they doing it? <laughs> sport unifies people, and it promotes individual and team achievement and excellence, mm-hmm. none of which, <laughs> yeah, none of which are present in this movie. What's so galling about it is that on a routine basis, at primary school, we came up with impromptu games to play in the playground that made more sense and were more cohesive as sports than this. Yep. We had a game called Pile On, right? <laughs> Where we would take a tennis ball or tenny ball, uh, for those of you north of the border, and um, you would uh, you would throw it against the, one person who had the ball would throw it against the wall, pitch it against the wall, hard enough that it would cross over the back over the playground where we were all gathered and onto the sort of grass playing field behind. And then whoever felt brave enough, you had to run over and grab the ball, at which point everybody else screamed, pile on, and started chasing that person who then had to make it to the touchline, which was the other side of the of the field before everybody <laughs> before everybody amassed on top of them and caused horrific injuries. And that was a more functional sport <laughs> than David Webb Peoples has come up with for this film, which is which pivots entirely upon this sport. 
Yeah, my <laughs> primary school had a very similar game. Um, I just dispensed with a tennis ball and was called Pileonis. Cool. Certainly, um, <laughs> so, they're legally distinct there, Craig. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also, it was more coherent and enjoyable than the sport in this film. Mm. <laughs> just bizarre. Just bizarre. Yeah. Uh, this is a film that was kind of at the periphery of. Um, it was always sort of. I was. I was aware of it when I was younger. Like you say, Scott. I feel like it had a reputation. Um, I didn't know it as Blood of Heroes because outside the US, it was Salute of Salute of the Jugger, and I, I had heard of it. And it was the kind of film that I might have rented on a whim. You know, knowing it was some sort of schlocky B movie. I had heard enough people talk about it. I would hear it referenced in places. I would read reviews of it in like my old copy of the Time Out film guide from 1996 or whatever the edition I had was <laughs> and um, in fact it would have been earlier than that so there was a real danger that I might have stumbled across this when I was earlier but you compare it to something else that you would have on that list like The Running Man or something for example <laughs> and there's a sort of film made on an absolute budget um, centering around some sort of bizarre future sport in an apocalyptic, broken down dystopian future, and that's a fantastically entertaining film. Um, and it's not that it has a complex rule set or anything that has to be abided by. It's just a really enjoyable time. I would have been so disappointed if I had actually bothered to rent this um, yeah. back in back in the day. So I'm glad I was able to steal it for free. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's strange you mentioned about the running man because that was actually very much in my head um, while watching this I actually watching Rollerball as well mm. uh, what you have there apart from like uh, you sort of get around the morality part of it by these people being forced against their will to take part so mm-hmm. that evades that particular issue of you, you're killing people because you actually have to but you have charismatic actors and that which helps a lot but also you have any character at all you mm. understand who <laughs> these people are you see here are some individuals and I can recognise them, tell you which one they are and what they're doing and what their motivations are. Whereas in this, there's some people with some masks on and once they've got their outfit on until the end when the the other team, I don't even say the bad team because they're pretty, both pretty bad, have sort of deep red scarves or headbands or something and like, well, I can finally tell which one's which, but I still don't care. <laughs> yeah. Also, the see the, at the end the the team that they're playing against the people who are in the league. I can't remember. Is there any actual evidence there to suggest that they're living any better life as a result of being juggers within the league than anyone else? Oh, you see, like the the big guy, um, yeah, Gonzo, Gonzo. Yeah, you see him going to the meeting with the guy that he's forced to call my lord. Um, mm-hmm. They have a bit and, of a banquet or something, don't they? Yeah, a banquet of cockroaches and flies, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and where they don't have plates either, but do have seashells instead of plates, which I guess at least last longer than leaves. But um, yeah, I don't get the idea that they are. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's a short answer to your question. No, I don't, I don't think that they're, they're doing any better. Not yeah. that like, any of the, you only see one of them. The other people effectively don't exist. Just bizarre. Six million dollars. Jesus yeah. wept. This, like You're talking about David Webb Peoples, so um, I think the notable thing about the other films, well-regarded films that he wrote the script for, is that he didn't direct it. And yeah, I wonder exactly. how much that plays into it. I mm. suspect quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, that passed 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, and join us again, and we shall pass some more time with you, uh, dear listeners. Uh, But until that time, uh, take care of yourself and each other. And if you'd like to get in touch with us for any particular reason, you can do. Email podcast at fudsonfilm.com, facebook.com slash fudsonfilm, or Twitter at fudsonfilm. Guess I'll see you around. Yes, I'll feed the same.